Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. April, and so we're just plugging along, and we'll, an incredible chapter. And we've our way into chapter 8, and chapter 8 is an incredible chapter. And we've been talking about some deep, rich, and very plain and, cr- and clear biblical truth. And in light of some of these truths that we've been talking about, we arrive at a if that, then this is true statement in verse 12. And what the statement exactly is, it says, so then. In other words, if these things are true, so then these things are true. So then this is the consequence of those things being true. And in, in, the, in the passage, what comes right before verse 12 is, if you know your math, 12 minus 1 is 11. So what happens right in verse 11 is that we're told, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. If that's true... So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. We are debtors. If verse 11 is true, and everything else in Romans chapter 8 is true, then we are debtors. We are debtors. If the Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in you, if the one who gave life to your body and will one day give life to your mortal body, you'll have a new body through the Holy Spirit, then, if that's true, we, go, we owe God everything. We owe Him absolutely everything. Our very lives are owed to God. We owe Him everything in our life, not just our bodies. We owe Him our finances. We owe Him, we, we dedicate our children to Him. We, our, our work is devoted to Him. Our recreation is devoted to Him. Our sleep is devoted to Him. Every aspect of our life, we are debtors. And let me just ask you a question. If we are not debtors to the flesh, and we are debtors to the Spirit, let's just ask ourselves a question. What has the flesh ever done for you? And the flesh, biblically, is referring to the sinful flesh. Our sinful flesh, the, the aspect of our life, even as believers, even though the, the flesh has been given a death blow, we still have these sin, this indwelling sin, these issues. And let's just ask, what has the sinful flesh ever done for us? What's it ever done for us? Well, the flesh has accused us. The flesh has condemned us, regularly condemns us. The flesh causes us to believe lies. The flesh often agrees with the enemy of our soul, the devil himself. The flesh causes us to rebel against God. The flesh causes pain. The flesh, flesh leads us to embrace shame. The flesh often drives us to isolation and and sinful loneliness. The flesh often brings anxiety. The flesh leads us to believe that there are things in this world so much better than Jesus. The flesh tempts us to expect the worst about everything and everyone. Or on the flip side, the flesh makes us think much of ourselves. And the flesh wants us to fish for praise and compliments and gather people around us that are peers that will tell us how wonderful we are and affirm us in everything. 
to get everything and everyone that's toxic in our life out of our life so we get a big pocket of people around us who will just praise us continually and then call that love. The flesh will tell you that we deserve love or that I am enough without God and without others. I am enough. The flesh keeps people blinded to the beauty of Jesus by obsession with ourselves. So, okay, let's, okay, to whom, what do we go to the flesh? Well, that's a long, it's a litany of, of really wonderful things, isn't it, that I just read off? We don't owe anything to the flesh, in other words. It's a lot of terrible things that we can credit the flesh with. And we are not, therefore, debtors to the flesh. So what has the Holy Spirit done for us? So are we debtors, and whom do we owe? Everything to the Holy Spirit or everything to the flesh? Well, who gave you life? Physical life and spiritual life. Who opened your eyes to the truth about Jesus. Who indwells your very body. Who reminds you of your sins being forgiven. Who reminds you and points you regularly to the person and work of Jesus. Who gives you to, the power to obey the law. Who gives you power to witness to people. Who drives you to the Father even when we sin. The Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit does. So shall we live indebted to the flesh... Or the Spirit. It's a no-brainer, right? It's a no-brainer. Let's read our passage, and we'll get into it. Look at verse 12. We'll read through 12, uh, verse 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the Lord this is the word of the Lord. So first, 12, verse 12, we are debtors. We are debtors. What kind of debtors to the Holy Spirit, to God, are we? Now, in one sense, we can think about a debtor as being somebody who, who's going to try to pay off a debt in their life. So I've got a debt that's, that's here with this dollar amount, and so I'm going to now work to pay this debt off. And in our minds, that's the first thing that typically comes uh, when we think about debt or debtors. I don't want to be—I uh, don't want to be a debtor because I don't want interest to make me broke the rest of my life. And if I owe something, I've got to work to pay that debt off. The interesting thing about the debt and us being debtors in this situation is it is a debt that we can never pay off. It's not something that we are working to pay off. It's a loan of perfect righteousness that we can never pay off ever so we are not in the same sense as a money loan or a bank loan we are not in that same sense trying to pay back God for everything that he has given us so in what sense then are we debtors to God we are debtors not to the flesh according to the flesh we are debtors in this sense that we owe God our gratitude our worship and our obedience it's a debt that we can never pay back we cannot even try to pay back all that Christ has given us we owe our bodies, ourselves, because he gave himself for us. 
In other words, we don't get to keep identity as a person outside of Christ. If we belong to Christ, if he has died for us and rescued us and the Holy Spirit has brought us to life, then we have to, to view all of our life, not as a pocket by which I can do this on this day and this on this day and I've got my work self and then I've got my church self, I've got my student self and I've got my mom self and my dad self and then fill in the blank. There is no pocket of our lives that God does not have authority over. Not a single pocket of our life that is ours in our possession. We owe God everything. We are debtors of a debt we can never pay back. Our everything is the Lord's. We are not debtors to the flesh. We are debtors to God. Everything in my life, God, is yours. Whatever you want for me, wherever you call me to go, whatever you call me to do, whatever resource you place in my hand, I will first see it as yours. And if you just want me to enjoy that, I will enjoy that. And that's the way I'll use it for your glory. If you want me to give that, I'll give that. If that's what you want me to do for your glory. If you want me to make it grow, I'll make it grow for your glory. But I am at your mercy, God. I owe you everything. There is no other Lord over our life but the King of the universe. He is my God. I owe him everything. We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, but we are debtors, that kind of debtor. So are, are we debtors? What would debtors to the flesh look like? We are not debtors to live according to the flesh. That is what non-believers do in verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's not how we are to live. That's what non-believers do. Keep living by the flesh. The non-believers in this world whether they want to hear it or not, are enemies of God. And I want enemies to God, of God to become friends of God. And enemies of God live according to the flesh. They don't view their life as God's. They view their life as theirs. And they can do what I want and do what they want with their life. I, I, I'm my own person. I'm going to live life the way I want to live life. And by the grace of God, the Christian is fundamentally different than that. Our whole posture to everything is different. I am not my own. I am purchased with a price. The God of the universe bought me. He gets to determine the way my life goes, not me. So we are not debtors to live according to the flesh. That's what non-believers do. They keep living by the flesh. But, the text says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, there are different ways... I mean, uh, Richard and I, just a little bit ago, we're talking about this. There are different ways to interpret this. And I'm going to give it my, my best shot to say what this is meaning. Putting to death the deeds of the body and living, that's what that means when we say come to Christ. And when you come to Christ, when you repent and believe, when you become a Christian, that is the set pattern for the rest of your life. Not to be resaved over and over again, but the direction of your life, repentance from the way I was living and the way I am living, and a turning to Christ, that is the pattern of existence for the rest of your life. That's what being in debt to the Spirit looks like, is t running to Christ, turning to Christ, coming to Christ, going to Christ, away from myself, looking to Christ. And it says, if by the Spirit we put the, to death the deeds of the body, the deeds of the flesh. Now, how do we do that by the Spirit? What is this life in the Spirit? 
look like. And I have a couple passages, one in particular, actually. We'll get to a couple other texts here in a little while. But in John 16, you can turn there if you want, or just listen to me read it. But I, I want us to consider what the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, does in the life of a person, okay, in the life of a Christian, and how the Spirit's working in us, if we're, we're going to put to death the deeds of the flesh, how's, how's that going to happen? Because we're not the world that's going to live according to the flesh and live in such a way that leads to death. We are in Christ, so we are now going to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Now, how does the Spirit, if we're doing it by the Spirit, how does the Spirit help us put to death the deeds of the flesh? Okay? And what I want to do to answer that question is go to John 16 and listen to Jesus' words about what the Holy Spirit will do when the Holy Spirit comes into the life of people. Now before Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, we know that the Holy Spirit of God in the Old Testament would, come, would, would go into the temple and would go among and on God's people, but the Spirit of God would not be indwelling God's people. So God's presence would be with God's people and would lead God's people, but the Holy Spirit did not indwell individuals. And that's the promise of the new covenant, is that the Spirit of God would be indwelling the people of God. And those who are the people of God are those who are circumcised of heart by the Spirit. Okay, those who have been born again. So when Jesus is talking about what the Holy Spirit will do when the Holy Spirit comes into us, in John 16, we get a clear, central role of the Spirit's work in our lives. Okay? So John 16, starting in verse 12, it says this, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. And listen to this. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The central role of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to take what is Christ's and deliver it to us in a way that will glorify Jesus. He will glorify me. So when you see a group of people who are bonkers about Jesus, you can know the Holy Spirit's at work. The Holy Spirit is called the shy one of the Trinity because the Holy Spirit doesn't glorify himself. And so when you see a group of people who are obsessed with the Holy Spirit, praise God that they're loving the Lord, praise God that they're missing the point. Because the Holy Spirit's central role in our lives is to take what is Jesus's, declare it to us in a way that would glorify Jesus. And so the question about putting to death the deeds of the body and the Holy Spirit at work in us is what, where are we going to look? What are we going to do? And what the Holy Spirit is doing in us is after we're converted is reminding us how much better Jesus is than fleshly desires. He, he takes what is the, the sons and he delivers, delivers it to us. And so when I'm living my life and I'm struggling with sin, I don't keep going down that path because the Holy Spirit won't let me. And the Holy Spirit is taking our attention away from things that are lesser and reminding us, hey, you know, Jesus is better. And it may be a season, it may be a decade, but the Holy Spirit won't let us as believers fall into the lie 
over our lifetime that other things are better than Jesus because he's always taking what is the Lord's and delivering it to us in a way that will glorify Jesus. And our life, for the rest of our life, as people who are debtors to God, is devoted to seeing how wonderful and glorious Jesus is through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is at work in you to shine a spotlight on Jesus to show us and remind us how much better Jesus is than sin. The Holy Spirit reminds us of truth when the flesh is believing lies. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And the reality of this life is, and with walking with God, is that the path to life, more life right now, is by putting to death the deeds of the flesh. That's path to more life right now. Putting to death the deeds of the flesh through the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and we, we say, we step back and we just kind of analyze that statement. And I, I begin to wonder some how-tos. The path to more life right now is by putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Does anybody in here struggle, even with the power of the Holy Spirit, at times to put to death the deeds of the flesh? How? We need some encouragement. Because I think even by looking to Jesus, even by evaluating my life and going against sin and mortifying the flesh, let's get after this, put to death the deeds of the body. It's a struggle. And although I'm almost the best husband I could possibly be in this world, there's still a little bit of room to grow. Okay. I hope you heard the jest in that. So how about a shot of courage? Because if by the Spirit, we're going to put to death the deeds of the flesh, the Holy Spirit led Apostle Paul to tell us some amazing things. We're going to get a couple shots of courage here, the real stuff, the good stuff, not the stuff you can go and buy, the stuff that's here given to us. Revelation, God's Word. Look back in Romans. Look at verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Now we're going to see two shots of courage here. Number one is going to be those who are led by the Spirit. What does it mean led by the Spirit? We've already talked about the activity of the Spirit, but then those who are led by the Spirit. The second is the sons of God, and the rest of the sermon is going to be built around the idea of sons of God. So shot of courage number one, you are led by the Spirit. Shot of courage number two, you are a son of God. And those two things are keys for us to understanding life and battle against the flesh and against the enemy of our soul. And it's crucial for us. So number one, you are led by the Spirit. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. We can work through this in reverse order. If you're a son of God, if you're a Christian, you are the ones who are led by the Spirit. I thank Adam for recognizing this uh, last week and, and, this, and two weeks ago. These are not two categories. Like there's a group of Christians who are led by the Spirit and then another group of Christians who are not led by the Spirit. If you are a child of God, you are led by the Spirit. It's, it is descriptive. It's not prescriptive to say there's some who do and some who don't. All who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. If you are a Christian, you are a son of God. And so for all who are led by the Spirit, what does that mean then? Is that life, in verse, like in verse 4, it's not a, a conditional statement, but I want us to understand the word led. This is really interesting. Commentator Tom Schreiner said this. He says, the leading of the Spirit does not refer to, in, in this instance, the guidance for everyday decisions in determining the will of God. Okay? Typically when we think, what, what, is life, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? We immediately go to, 
subjective impressions throughout the day. I'm going to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit today. I'm going to take divine opportunities. I'm going to talk to people I want to talk to about the Lord today. I'm going to be nice to the person I'm usually mean to. I am going to follow the leading of the Spirit. And immediately we go to subjective impressions. And the Holy Spirit does do that. I do not want to discount the leading of the Holy Spirit throughout the day. But if immediately when we think about being led by the Spirit, this is another, this is kind of for free here. If you, if you want to be led by the Spirit, do what the Spirit says, God's Word. If you want to be led by the Spirit, open your Bible and obey. Okay, now back. Okay, as many who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Being led by the Spirit, although the Spirit does lead us, that's not what this text is talking about. And here's what he says. It refers to being controlled by or determined by or governed by the Spirit. The passive form of the Greek word for led is significant, meaning led here is it's it's passive, it's descriptive. You are led by the Spirit. It's like we're being controlled by or determined by, brought ahead by the Spirit of God working in us, meaning this is not self-generating within us. I'm gonna follow the leading of the Holy Spirit today. I'm gonna do better today. Pouring sweat and armpits are full of sweat, and you're just just I'm gonna do it today. It's not what this is talking about. The passive form of the Greek word for led is significant. It suggests that the Spirit is the primary agent in Christian obedience. That it is His work in believers that accounts for their obedience. And friends, these are, this is a shot of courage in the sense that, you, are you battling with sin? Praise God, because that's God battling in you. Because that's not you battling on your own. If you're in the fight, if you're in the fight, and just minimally baseline, I want to do better. Praise God, because God is leading you by the Spirit. That is the Spirit of God in you to fight against the flesh, Satan, demons, warfare. You're in the Lord's army, and He is leading you. It says in a couple places like this, if you look at Philippians 2, 2, 12 and 13, you know a very famous verse. But it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And as we read this passage, if by the Spirit we put the deeds of the body, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Who is it in us making us want to do that? God. The Holy Spirit of God, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Why do you want to follow God? Why do you want to obey Why do you want to get better this year? Why in January will you have a New Year's resolution? Because God's at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You are led by the Spirit of God. That's why. The sons of God fight the flesh because they're being led by the Spirit. So every time you look at your effort, you wake up tomorrow morning and it's early, it's, it's the, you only got three minutes to read your Bible before you go to work, and so you get that sleepy out of your eye, and you're like, oh gosh, I'm going to get behind to my Bible reading plan this morning. I'm going to have to catch up this week. I'm going to have to listen. I'm like three days behind now. I'm calculating. I'm going to have to read, read it on audiobook. Why do you want to hear from God? Because you're being led by the Spirit. That's why. And you may say, well, oh man, look, I bummed out, so I only got three minutes in. Those three minutes were motivated by God himself. That's God at work in you, both the will and the work for his good pleasure. And you look and you, you say, well, oh man, I'm a failure this morning. I, got, I just got three minutes. Or, like, the Spirit of God led you to do that this morning. 
That's God at work in you, both the will and the work for his good pleasure. Now, Paul, the Apostle Paul, in another place in Colossians, says it like this. Colossians 1.29, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he so powerfully works within me. For this I toil. Who's toiling? Paul. For this I toil. Struggling with all his energy that he so powerfully works within me. As we try, as we're wanting to get better, as we repent and put to death the deeds of the flesh, whose energy is flowing through your veins? The God of the universe. God is at work in you. This isn't you. You are not alone. And you say, I I just feel like you're not alone. That is a lie of the enemy. It's a lie of the flesh. It's, it's condemnation. You are not alone in the fight, in the struggle. God is at work in you. You are led by the Spirit. No, no, no believer gets the op- opportunity to say, I'm not led by the Spirit. Yes, you are. You don't belong to God. You are led by the Spirit of God. Nobody gets to opt out of this. If you belong to God, if you are son or daughter of God, all who are sons and daughters of God are led by the Spirit. It's an objective fact. It's just you are led by the Spirit. That's why you don't like your sin. That's why you want to get better. And that's why I call it a shot of courage. It's a truth about us. It's a declaration about us. All those who are the Lord's are led by the Spirit. It's they're sons of God. Look at verse 14b. Shot of courage number two. You are sons of God. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, in the Bible, we have multiple forms of identity as believers. Okay, So let's think through some forms of identity about what the Bible calls us as Christians. And like, let's work through the, the New Testament because we don't want to be one side or the other. But these kind of build on each other. So we have, we have a, a clay. Remember that? Okay, we have believers can be called clay. Jars of, we have, have this treasure in jars of clay. Uh, Romans 9, clay to be molded. Okay, so clay, it's one identity. Paul calls himself the chief of all sinners. It's not our primary identity. Okay? He doesn't call other people sinners. He calls himself sinner. That's okay, a crucial thing. There's an aspect where we know that apart from Christ, I, I, am, I, I still am needy. I still struggle with sin. Sheep. It's identity. Sheep. Okay? We have servant or slave. I'm a slave of God. Servant and slave. These are identifying statements about us. Okay? We are a friend. I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. Remember that song? Yeah. I am a friend. We are the bride of Christ. These are names. And within each one of these names, these identity markers about who you are, these identity statements... There is a treasure trove of truth in there for you. You say, where is there treasure for me, the sinner? Jesus loves sinners. And so you're loved. Well, where is there treasure in being clay? It's great because God fashions me. Well, where is the treasure in, in being known as a sheep? Well, he is my shepherd. He takes care of me. When I need sheared, he shears me. When a wolf comes, he protects me. Well, where is the great identity in being a slave or a servant? He is the good master who takes care of his servants in the best sort of way. He will never forsake me or leave me. He will lead me and guide me. He will give me work to do and let me share in the bounty. 
But then we have this statement that's the most precious of all statements of forms of identity. You are a son of God. This is the pinnacle. You are a son of God. And ladies in the room, I want you to, you've heard me say this before, I think. You're a son of God as well. Now, we're not going to get into weird, like, gender things that are going on in our world today. Because men are called the bride of Christ. Okay? But you are a son of God. And J.I. Packer has a couple quotes there, I think, that are of note. And he says this, if you want to tell how much a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Father is the Christian name for God. You ever read chapters before, paragraphs before, and you read them and you never forget them? This is one of those, really? I didn't have a frame of reference for that when I first read it. That's a big statement, Mr. Packer. We are God's very own sons. I want you to hear this. Jesus took on human flesh and even became God's enemy so that God's enemies might become sons of God. Let me say that again. Jesus took on human flesh and even became God's enemy so that God's enemies might become sons of God. And all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Every single Christian is the son of God. And why does that matter? What does it matter to know that you are and find this identifying marker as precious to you? Why is that so important? I want you to hear this. Inheritances, and ladies, for you also, inheritances went to the firstborn son. Jesus is the proper inheritance of everything. It works out perfect, what Dan just said. But who is his co-heirs? Who are Jesus' co-heirs of all things? His sons, God the Father's sons and daughters. Ladies don't get second-class inheritances. That's not how it works in the kingdom of God. You get the full deal. It's crucial for the believer to understand this, that the Father sent Jesus not, not just so we would no longer be enemies with him. And if you don't know him, that's why I prayed earlier. Like you're an enemy of God. People who don't, it's not just people who are non-believers. People in the world, it's not just that they're spiritually blind, lost, sinners. It's that they're God's enemies. And God loves his enemies. And he sent Jesus to become his very own son. You know, if, <laughs> his very own son to become an enemy. So that you and I could become sons. It's, it's completely otherworldly. We just kind of think, we, we don't understand, we say like, okay, well, you can understand God's love if you understand your own kids, you know, kid, your love for your children. It's like, yeah, you're, everybody's love for your children, is, it's completely conditional. They're your kids. That's why you love them so much. That's the condition. But God chose to make his enemies his children. That's a different otherworldly kind of love. Let's not minimize it to where we say, look, look, parent love, that's like God's love. Are you kidding me? Nobody loves other people's kids like their own kids because that's the condition. They're your kids. But God didn't just love sweet, innocent other children. He decided those, the very people who would murder his son, he would bring into his family and make them sons and daughters. Anybody here? If another person murdered your son, would love them in that way? 
He sent the Holy Spirit then to claim what Christ won. More accurately, who Christ won? You. In the next three verses, next three verses unpack this. Verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of fear, of slavery, to fall back into fear. But you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit inside of us, God did not send the Holy Spirit to come inside of us to empower us to be afraid, to be fearful people. The Holy Spirit did not, does not lead us back into bondage. Freedom, not bondage. And that's why a, a legalistic environment in Christianity is so antithetical, antithetical to everything that the Bible teaches. We are now free to obey God. Free. You're free. We get all the extra biblical rules. You can't do this, and you can't do this, and you can't do this, and you can't do that. And all the list, just the litany. Now here's 8,000 more laws to give to you. You're free. You're free to obey now. To live your life for the glory of God. You're finally free. That's what the Spirit does. And now inside of us, we have the spirit of adoption. J.I. Packer again says this. In adoption, God takes us into His family and fellowship. He establishes us as children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is even greater. There's a lot of believers that know God the judge. Do you know God your heavenly Father? He's yours. And let's just say there was some child who went and bullied Ransom. And let's say every time I tried to talk to this kid, he hissed at me, picked up a knife, and tried to kill me. What reason would I have him over for dinner? I wouldn't. And yet, to a far greater degree, we hissing schmeagles at the appearance of the glory of God who picked up the knife and the stones and the nails to kill His very own Son. God loved you that much that He would send Him to die in your place the death you deserve to die. Not just that He could give some guilt trip to you so that He would put His Spirit within you just be guilty the rest of your life for that, but to welcome you into His family God wanting to save the very ones who murdered His Son, you and me, to make us family. It wasn't a bait and switch. It wasn't a trick. He didn't give us the Holy Spirit to lead us into a life of doubting His heart towards us, just wondering when He's going to get us back. Being in fear that He's going to pounce or that His sovereignty is going to turn dark on us. And in this context of the flesh and the Spirit, here's what the Spirit does in the life of the child of God. Leads us to the posture of crying out, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. You're my Father. To a fatherless world. We have a Father. We have a Father. 
And you've heard it said before, the Jewish people didn't have any frame of reference for this. Saying Yahweh was much like saying in the book, uh, what's the, the, the sorcery book that everybody loves? The name that came out to me named, what's his name? Voldemort. <gasps> okay. Calling Vol Voldemort. There's, there's reverence. You don't speak that name. Reverence to God. Yahweh. The great I am. And this revelation of Jesus when he says, pray, pray, our Father who art in heaven. And hear the Spirit of God inside of us. The informality of it. Coming to God. Not as Yahweh and shaking in our boots. <sighs> the holy God of the universe. Whom we have access into the holy of holies. Not just to come and kneel and pray and reverence, but to cry out to and hug and love on and have Him pull us up into His arms and love on us as a Father. Abba, Father, from the inside out, not with doubt or wonder, does He love me, does He care for me? The Holy Spirit inside of us working to cry out, Abba, Father, I need You! And we have Him. Our Heavenly Father. Now when Packer says this, is, this does not dominate the way we view Christian life, we don't yet know very much. I think he's right. Justification is the crown jewel of all Christian theology, and yet it's not the sweetest one. We are justified so we could be adopted. And there's a sweetness to that, a preciousness to that, that we would be known and loved by the Father, Sovereign Father of the universe. And we could be in His presence without shaking like Voldemort. It's personal. And this is what the Spirit of God does inside of us. This internal witness. The Spirit at work inside of us crying out, Abba, Father. Look at verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We have this internal witness. There's different levels and forms of assurance we can see assurance of our salvation, just what Ryan was talking about before. And in some ways, the church is this, this big assurance factory for believers. Mark Dever said that one time, where we get together and we assure each other, hey, the, the grace of God is upon you. You know how good that is on a tough week to be reminded of that? If you had a great week coming in and be the one who's reminding others, hey, the Lord is with you, His favor is upon you. God is your Father and you are His Son. That, that's such a precious thing for us to be able to do. That's why I love the passing of the peace, because we're being trained to proclaim the gospel to one another. The blood of Christ will never lose its power. That's making you evangelists. We're teaching, we're sharing the gospel with each other. We're reminding each other with our mouths, the blood of Christ will never lose its power. And it's not just me, the preacher, the talking head, getting up and saying it. It's you saying it to each other. The blood of Christ will never lose its power. The blood of, blood of Christ will never lose its power. The blood of, blood of Christ will never lose its power. Yes, thank you. That's good. That's good news. Dr. Dan, no, it won't. Yeah, it won't ever lose its power. It's, yes, thank you, Dan, for reminding me. It will never lose its power. This internal witness within inside of us, we have these different forms of assurance, but one of the forms of assurance of our salvation we have is that within us, there is this deep knowledge. It's sometimes hard to explain to others, but we know it internally. I belong to God. I am His man. He is my God. I am His son. He is my father. And I know it and nobody can talk me out of it. Nobody can talk me out of it. Amen. I know Him. 
I've been with Him. He knows me. He is my Father. He has forgiven my sins. I have sensed and known His presence. He indwells within me. I am the Lord's. That internal witness where you just know, yes, God is mine and I am His. And there may be times of doubt, but when doubt comes, the Holy Spirit reminds you to cry out, Abba, Father, you know, I know I'm His. I know it. I just know And that's the internal witness of the Holy Spirit in your life. And what does all this mean for us? What does all this mean for us? The fact that we are sons of God. And the Spirit is within us. And we have a Heavenly Father by, and, and the Spirit working inside of us crying out, Abba, Father. What, what, what's the consequences? Because it's all consequential. What are the consequences for us? So glad you guys all asked. Look at verse 17a. And if children, if we're His kids... If we belong to God, if the Spirit's work inside of us, if these things are true, if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If we are His children, then we are heirs, fellow heirs with Christ. What does Christ inherit? We just read a verse. All things. What too shall we inherit? All things. And it's not just all things as if that's not enough. What does the text say? Heirs of God. We will inherit this earth. Trees. Plants. Animals. Wealth. Power. but we will also, and primarily, inherit God. God will be our God. And we will be His people, and we will see them face to face. See Him face to face. We will reign with Christ. All that Christ has is ours, and we will inherit God Himself. We get God, not just His stuff. With inheritances, just like the man in Luke 15, the prodigal leaves. The son wasn't enough. He wanted his stuff. Give me your stuff. You die. The older brother didn't understand that he already had the father. He wanted the goat. He wanted his stuff too. The reality is, what we get to inherit is embrace from our Heavenly Father. We get God. God of the universe is our God and we are His children. We get Him. We get God. We get our Heavenly Father. And He will never leave us nor forsake us. We will be with Him for all eternity. We are fellow heirs with Christ. And if that's true, this is interesting. What do the sons of God experience? And this is uh, a little unique because we end talking about suffering. Because that's where the text does. And here's what he says. If heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we also may be glorified with Him. Now this is fascinating. How did God the Father father His Son? How did God the Father father His Son? One of the things we have to exclude, or one of the things we have to understand, is that sonship does not exclude suffering. In fact, it's tied neatly in in the exact same verse with becoming heirs of all things, being an heir of God, provided we suffer with Him. 
Suffering is a part of sonship. Well, that sounds odd. To be in Christ means to welcome sonship and blessing and favor and provision and communion with God and joy from your heavenly Father's hand daily, yearly, monthly, decadely, blessing from God, from His hand. But it also means welcoming and not running from the suffering that comes from His hand as well. Not just from the enemy's hand, not just from circumstances, suffering that comes from God's hand as well. From a loving Father. God the Father in His loving kindness has planned, as He did with Jesus, in this lifetime, wonderful things for us and wonderful things that come out of bad things for us. The Father planned suffering for His Son and the path to glorification for every believer includes and is through the suffering that God also has for us. And if we look at suffering and we just look at it and run from it and don't want anything of it, we miss that behind suffering is glorification. And hear me say this, glorification, which no suffering will happen with glorification. When Christ returns, we get our glorified bodies, or we go to be with the Lord if we die uh, before He comes, or we go home before He comes, there'll be no more suffering or pain for us. Okay? Glorification means no suffering. But glorification comes to those who gladly walk the road of suffering now. Christians look at life differently than non-Christians. And there's a branch of Christianity that has no frame of reference for this at all. None. Just no frame of reference for this. But it says, provided that we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. And we do not want to glorify suffering, but we need to understand that glorification comes through it. And if we want to avoid it or walk around it, we're missing the reality of what God has for us as a Father now. And we just can't say, I want the blessing, I want the privilege, I want the love. We want all of those things. And then say to God, but don't give me any suffering. The posture of the sons of God is that whatever my Father has for me, I will love and trust Him. I will pray to Him. I will commune with Him. I will find joy with Him. I will petition Him to remove it and then trust His fatherly hand. But we will not doubt His heart toward us. We know His heart toward us is good and that He works all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. But if you're a son of God, son or daughter, son of God, included in this life before, before glorification, it's tremendous joy, provision, and blessing, and suffering from His hand. So the believer whom the Spirit of God is crying out, it's like, if I know it's for my good, if I really am firm in that, and I believe that it's for my good and He loves me no matter what comes my way. When, and guys, blessing, provision, all of that comes far more than suffering. My goodness, look at our lives. I think all of us have air conditioning and heat and a warm bed. I mean, He's lavished blessing on us day in and day out over and over again. And we shouldn't be dreary Christians wandering around like, what's God going to get me with next? I'm due. No, 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 no. We don't have to be afraid. He's our Heavenly Father. We don't have to walk in fear. Whatever comes my way, it's for my good. Whatever comes my way is for my good. 
What greater joy is that? Nothing comes my way as for my bad. Nothing. Not a single thing. Whatever my Father has for me is for my good. Come what may, I belong to Him. And so I think our response here today is for the believer, we get to just the joy of crying out, Abba, Father. We get to see these songs, and from the inside out, the internal witness is crying out, God is mine, and I am His. I am purchased. I am an heir with Christ. I have a heavenly Father. God, help me to know what it means to, to walk as your son. And for the enemies of God in this room, and there are some, I want you to repent and believe. If you're a child in here, that call is for you. It's for anybody who doesn't know Jesus, who has not been born again. Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. Become God's son today. Become God's son today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need wisdom and direction. Help us to sing.